1: Well, you are listening to the mortification of spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I am joined as always by Carl Truman and Amy Bird. And today we are delighted to have with us a special guest, uh, Matthew Barrett. Matthew Barrett is associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, it is my alma mater, and uh, so I'm particularly pleased to have uh, Matthew on as a as a representative of the Southern Baptists. You know my my DNA, my background, um, but i am I am also quite pleased because Matthew represents um, things that i 'm particularly encouraged about in regard to my alma mater um, uh, Matthew, first of all, thanks for for coming on with us today.
2: Thank you for having me
1: um, I, I, I think i 'd spoken to you before, and I had told you that when I was at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and it was a much smaller seminary at that time. it was in the the mid '90s and they, Midwestern was kind of the last Southern Baptist seminary to to kind of turn around to make the shift. And one of my systematic theology professors was a process theologian, and uh, so it's a, it's a very very different place now, which I'm I'm thankful for. And uh, and Professor Barrett represents uh, uh, what is what is new about the seminary. And as a result, I mean, when I went there, I think we had around. 500 students. What's the, um, what's the enrollment right now at Midwestern?
2: Goodness. Uh, I may not know the exact number. I know it's above 3,000, I think.
1: Right? Yeah. The last I saw it was above 3,000. Yeah, it's remarkable. Yeah,
2: but, but even more important is, is the content. Mm-hmm. Uh, you yes. know, just your story is remarkable, uh, tragic, mm-hmm. but <laughs> remarkable yeah, uh, yeah. that, uh, you know, you could be sitting in the class and, and have someone teaching process theology. I can yeah. confidently say that's not happening.
1: <laughs> <But, laughs> yes, and I can confidently <laughs> say it's it's not it's not yeah. either, you know, yeah. and and so I'm I'm very thankful I'm very thankful for uh what the Lord has done um at Midwestern and very glad that you are are there. Uh, uh Professor Barrett, we are excited uh for, first of all just for our listeners. Uh you may have heard you may have seen uh, uh Matthew's name around because he's even though he's a, he's a relatively young man, he, he has books everywhere. Um, uh, one of his notable, uh, either that he's authored or, 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 or edited, and, and I'm sitting right next to my computer right now, is this big, thick, like 5,000-page <laughs> work that he's edited um, on, uh, on the doctrine of justification, which we're excited about. Um, he edited uh, a series and authored one of the volumes in, uh, in, in, the, in a five solas series of books, ones that, one that our own Carl Truman uh, contributed to on justification. Uh, Dr. Barrett uh, contributed the, the volume on, uh, on Sola Scriptura. Uh, both of those are, are excellent. And he just keeps writing. And today we want to talk to him specifically about uh, his brand new book called None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. Um, Matthew, tell us just briefly why you wrote the book, what, it's, what its central thesis is, what, what do you mean by the undomesticated attributes of God? Because this is not, I would, I would tell our listeners who aren't familiar with the book. This is not just another book on the attributes of God. This addresses attributes that far too many evangelicals, um, have either never heard of or have never really been taught about so, so tell us a little bit about what you're doing in the book
2: yeah i mean a lot of it comes out of my own personal background i'm, I'm not sure it's unique to myself i think it's something that a lot of christians have experienced uh, most christians when they start to talk about god or think about god either in the context of their local church or, or just with one another uh, they they tend to talk about God as uh, someone who's obviously bigger than them, but uh, merely a bigger, better version of them. And so God is not uh, fundamentally a, a different type of being. Actually, he's a lot like us, just just greater. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if we were to use some some more technical theological uh, le- vocabulary here. Uh, in, in theological circles, this has been identified as theistic personalism, uh, monopolytheism. Uh, that that word monopolytheism is one that may be helpful because it describes a god who actually is a lot like uh, the gods of, um, you know, an- ancient Greek mythology, or, or even maybe some of the gods of the nations surrounding Israel. These were gods that Uh, maybe bigger and better, a better version of of whoever, you know, is worshiping them, but uh, they're still a lot like those who are worshiping them. Um, You know, maybe they're passable or they're changeable. Uh, You know, we see this in some of, you know, ancient Greek mythology with, gods who, you know, one minute you're, you're in their good graces and the next minute uh, they've changed their mind uh, or they're experiencing a mood swing or, you know, they're yeah. they're grieving and, and you know, the, the victim of sorrow, just like you are, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, sometimes Christians accidentally or intentionally at times buy into this type of, of view of God because uh, we, we tend to, our, our God talk uh, tends to expose us in this way. Uh, but nonetheless, we think, well, we know God's one. Uh, so, so the mono part, mono polytheism. Um When I, you know, and oftentimes this view of God is just assumed, um, it's just assumed in popular Christianity. When I started to more or less accidentally stumble upon some of the great thinkers of the Christian faith, they helped, uh, you know, whether it was an Augustine, uh, an Anselm, a Thomas Aquinas, a John Calvin, I started to notice, it didn't matter who I was reading. they all spoke of God in a way that was radically different than, mm-hmm. than the way I was taught uh, or the way that I assumed. Uh, the, the God was not just a, you know a super man. Uh, he, he actually was a, a, in, a, in a different class, a, a different type of being altogether. And uh, so these uh, great thinkers took me back to the scriptures. And I started to notice that, uh, well, the Bible actually has a very different picture of God than popular Christianity. Uh, this is a God, to, to borrow from someone like Anselm, uh, this is a God who, uh, he, he is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the the perfect being. Now, now, every Christian is going to affirm that God's perfect, but what uh, someone like Anselm means by that is, uh, well, if he's the perfect being, he must be an infinite being. And if he's an infinite being in contrast to us finite creatures, well, then any type of, of limitation, uh, must be precluded from the very start. Now, if you think about, you know, what some of those limitations might be, uh, well, uh, li- all the limitations we experience, you know, we chain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we are made up of parts. We are dependent on others, um, uh, we we uh, very much are vulnerable to uh, suffering um, and, uh, you know, an emotional fluctuation. Uh, we're bound by time and space and, and our power is limited. Our knowledge and wisdom are limited and on and on and on. But all of those limitations cannot be true of God. Otherwise, he would no longer be the perfect being. He would no longer be someone than whom uh, none, no one greater could, could be conceived. This is the the view of God that you know it's not just unique to Augustine or Anselm, but you see it in the Psalms, you see it from Paul in, in Acts seventeen, uh, you see it uh, from Moses and some of Moses's encounters with God at Sinai. So it pervades the Scriptures.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you you mentioned uh, what's oftentimes revealed in our God talk in the ways that we talk about God, and and uh, I, I was I was raised you know wonderful godly church. I heard the gospel faithfully, but. But oftentimes what the, the way that God was talked about reflected some of the very things you're you're speaking of, and I think sometimes people make a a logical leap that is just it's a bad leap in their mind. We are God created us in His image, and so so we're like we're made to be like God in some ways, obviously greatly limited, yeah. and therefore he must also be like us in some ways and so I remember as a youth in a wonderful church hearing things like you know, if you didn't have your quiet time this morning, God is still waiting in your room. He missed you today. Mm-hmm. And that talk made sense to sure. us. It just wasn't a good doctrine of God.
2: No, you're exactly right. Uh, too often the way we speak of God is, well, we, we start with our human experience um, mm-hmm. as much as we may say, we, we, you know, believe the Bible's our authority more often than not, we turn to our human experience. What does that look like? Well, you've given a great example. I mean, uh, in my own human experience, you uh, well, what what might that look like? It, it means that uh, well, we might go to my experience of love and just assume, mm-hmm. well, however I'm experiencing love, that just must be how God experiences love, perhaps just in greater measure. Uh, or this could this could go the other way, right? You know, if if I'm suffering, or if I'm uh, you know grieving uh, or or if I'm repenting or changing my mind, we assume, well, surely, that's true of god as well and you'll notice there we're, we're we're very much moving from our human experience and and the attributes that characterize us and very limited or sometimes immoral ways and then we mm. we more or less then uh make a beeline to god himself uh it you know carl could can chime in uh, on this as he's the historian but i think i'm right in saying actually that Maybe ironically, has a lot that looks a lot more like uh, the the way uh, Protestant liberalism approaches God mm. than the way uh, evangelicals, who should be rooted in the Reformation tradition, uh, have, have historically approached God. Um, this is very dangerous. I, I like the the example you used about the image of God. Yes, we are definitely created in the image of God, but God's not created in our image. Uh, the Bible, mm-hmm. Isaiah, has a lot to say about this. Right? The Bible calls that yeah. idolatry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we may not, m- most Christians out there may be thinking, well, I'm not, you know, bowing down to something, some wooden or, or metal idol I've made. But, but actually, uh, in, in just our God talk, we can, uh, we, we can sound like uh, we've actually bought into uh, an idolatrous system.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, Matthew, you raised liberalism there. seems to me that one of the, the pedagogical or apologetic problems we face relative to teaching the doctrine of God is, it's really very counterintuitive. You know, you, you talk to a typical Christian believer, evangelical, and uh, you talk about the doctrine of Scripture, and as soon as you start uh, nuancing the doctrine of Scripture or using sophisticated language, all kinds of alarm bells are going off in people's minds. This sounds like somebody's trying to pull a fast one on me. Uh, when you come to the doctrine of God, though, it it doesn't have that. That intuitive nature to it. Uh, when you start talking about divine simplicity, for example, and you start trying to outline exactly what that means to, to the ordinary Christian in the pew, their eyes glaze yeah. over. It, yeah. it, it's it's difficult to communicate the, the importance of these things because they're not intuitive. And yet, you quote David Bentley Hart, I think, on maybe several occasions in the book. Uh, David Bentley Hart, the Eastern Orthodox theologian, who says that the denial of simplicity is tantamount to atheism. Mm. Now, David Bentley Hart is a, you know, he's a bit of a blowhard kind of character in the language he uses. He, he never understates something. And yet, there's, there's an important truth he's trying to communicate there. So how would you talk to, you know, the ordinary, I don't want to sound patronized, but the ordinary Christian who just loves the Lord Jesus, reads their Bible, faithfully attends church, and is completely bemused, let's say, by somebody saying, hey, you just denied simplicity in what you said to me there. That's tantamount to atheism. You
2: know, I think for... For many out there, they may hear something like that. You know what Hart is saying is tantamount to atheism, and they may be shocked by it. I think when I first read it, I thought, "Oh, wow!" You know that maybe this is an overreaction. But but when I started to return to the doctrine of simplicity, it, it slowly started to make more and more sense. Uh, so so let's talk about simplicity for a second. Uh, you know, positively, we could say, well, simplicity refers to God's oneness. Uh, we, we see this in Scripture, assumed at least, uh, whenever it uh, doesn't merely associate a certain characteristic or attribute with God by saying God possesses love or acts in a loving way, but but actually says God is love or God is holiness. So it's not just something he possesses, but it's actually defining his very essence um, so, so that's a positive way to, to think about it. Uh, we could, though, put it more uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, a negative approach to theology and say, well, what would be the consequences if God is not simple, um, if his essence aren't his attributes and that his attributes aren't his essence? Well, major consequences follow. Uh, for example, it raises the question, well, do God's attributes somehow precede him if they are something other than his very essence. Uh, It could raise the question of, well, could these attributes be set over against one another, which is actually, this might be another topic, but actually in in some evangelical circles, that's a real issue, um, setting certain attributes that we personally prioritize over others. Uh, But we could also ask the question, uh, could God himself fall apart? Which sounds silly at first, but if you think about it, actually, it's a, a reasonable question to ask. Uh, if these attributes are, are separate from who God is, his very essence, um, well, then he has the potential to be divisible by these very attributes, even corrupted uh, by these attributes. Uh, you know, Stephen Charnock, the, the Puritan, as well as someone like Herman Bobbank they really capitalized on this point to say, well, simplicity is not just some doctrine we we, we should affirm out there that that is, you know, yeah, it's philosophical, but it's helpful. They actually argue that, no, simplicity is at the very core of our understanding of God. So, so you, you put all that together, uh, denying simplicity then, well, suddenly we have a very different type of God, uh, perhaps mm-hmm. no God at all, which is where the charge of atheism might come through, if this God is not only divisible, but his very essence or will could be corrupted. Now, you've asked the interesting question, Carl, and that is, you know, well, how do we, you know, when we're talking to the, the churchgoer, or perhaps, perhaps even a lot of pastors out there, you know, mm-hmm. this can sound like a, such a foreign discussion. Counterintuitive is the phrase you used. I, I like that. Um, I think you're right. It, it, there's no doubt about it. It was just part of the reason why I wrote the book. Uh, I, I guess I would say a, a couple of things. And, Carl, you and I have talked about this. Um, we tend to approach the Bible so often uh, by only, you know, putting our head down and looking at the storyline. Uh, what's what God is doing, His acts in mm-hmm. history. Carl, you've written some about this. Now that's very important. Uh, so, so don't mishear me. That uh, understanding what God has done and is doing, His acts in history, that is all crucial. We don't want to ignore that, and that speaks volumes about about uh, how we are redeemed. However, there can be a danger if we sort of put blinders on and consider nothing else. Uh, Because when we come to the text, uh, yes, it's focusing on God's redemptive acts in history for us. But that is ultimately meant to take us back into eternity and tell us who this triune, eternal, uh, simple, immutable God is in and of himself. This comes back to uh, an attribute like God's society. It's one of the reasons why I think the biblical authors talk about God's society so often. Uh, he is a God, yes, who has acted in history. Uh, and we as creatures are dependent on his acts for our redemption and sanctification and so on. However, God, we shouldn't then assume, like we were talking about earlier, we shouldn't then assume, oh, well, God too must be dependent mm-hmm. on the, cre- the creation he has made. No, actually, uh, God is independent. Uh, he is self-sufficient. He is self-existent, or he is ase He's a God of aseity Put positively, we could say God is life in and of himself. Uh, very different than, than you and I, who are very much dependent upon God for right. our life, let alone eternal life. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, someone like Paul in Acts 17 before he gets to, and this is so fascinating, this very apologetic, evangelistic encounter. Before he mm-hmm. gets to even the gospel itself, you know, the the climax of redemptive history, uh, he he first begins with God's society, and mm-hmm. he establishes that this God is not like your gods. He's not a god who lives in temples. He's not a god who depends on you to be fed. I you know I suppose or He's not a god, a needy god. Uh, I think one of you mm-hmm. uh, hinted at this earlier. You no, know, as if he's lonely. You know that you know yeah. you don't do your devotions. He's you know waiting for you in his room in your room, lonely. No, this is a god who's maximally alive, life in and of himself, self sufficient. Uh, we, we don't somehow you know fill the void in his heart or you know make him happy. Whereas otherwise he's not. Uh, no, this is the god of society. And once Paul establishes that crucial attribute everything else then follows uh because then he can he can move to history and say uh actually it's you uh who who depend on this god and Mm -hmm. uh, the gospel itself then depends on a god who ultimately does not depend on you only then Mm -hmm. can this can this god provide the salvation you need
4: i really want to highlight um how important this book is for the layperson to read, because you know we can use these words, deity and simplicity, and and this conversation can maybe sound like it's reserved for the academic theology world. But um, what I love about this book is that you don't write it for fellow academics, particularly that you are writing with a layperson in mind. And um, as a layperson reading this book, just really strengthens your faith. It, it causes you to delight in the triune God, which, um, you know, how could you not want to do that? And in one thing that you, you emphasize here, which I think is, is so good in, in many conversations that we have um, with unbelievers is you talk about the uncomprehensibility of God. And, and so often um, we'll hear that be an argument that leads to um, agnosticism or mysticism. But but how does this actually undermine both agnosticism and mysticism, God's uncomprehensibility.
2: Yes. You know, I think that you're onto something there that can be a fear uh, that, uh, well, if we go in this direction of God's incomprehensibility, uh, well, we, we must then not be able to, to know God at all or, or know anything true about God. And and certainly at that point, then the, the temptation can be to just, to, well, default to a type of agnosticism. Um, or, or a type of mysticism that uh, you know doesn't focus on so much the content, uh, but but rather just the, uh, the the feeling of of the mystery itself. Um, you know that that is a, uh, I, I suppose a legitimate fear, but I'm not sure it's a fear that um, we've. Well, let me put it this way: I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I've yet to meet a Christian. Uh, churchgoer or a pastor who is so um so probed something like incomprehensibility that they've that they have uh ended up in that camp. Uh I think mm-hmm. our tendency more or less is to uh so tame god that uh incomprehensibility or something like even uh you know agnosticism or mysticism, th- those are just like unfathomable uh, <laughs> they're they're not even a temptation for us I so maybe to get at the heart of your your question here uh in in our Christian circle today I think there's a case to be made that we need to recover God's incomprehensibility this is again this isn't um this isn't something that uh you know is left to, to philosophers to you know theorize about actually this is this is uh, the DNA of, of the Bible storyline. So when we come to Sinai with Moses, it is God's incomprehensible glory that's being assumed throughout this encounter as Moses asks the unthinkable, right, to see God's glory. Uh, perhaps Moses here wants, uh, you know, in context, he wants some verification in light of Israel's sin that God's going to, to continue with them. Uh, but nonetheless, uh he's asking the unthinkable that he could actually see God's glory. And and we know God's response in, in that narrative. He he says, Moses, no one, no one can see me and live. You know, it's, it's sort of like uh approach, trying to us us humans trying to approach the sun, and we would be disintegrated before we could even get close to it. But nonetheless, God accommodates himself to Moses. Uh, and passes by and lets Moses uh, see his backside, so to speak. Uh, so there's this gracious accommodation and, and maybe a confirmation to Moses that God will continue with them. All that to say, when we talk about this God, he if he is not a different type of being who is infinite and infinite in all his attributes, uh, well, then this isn't God at all that we're talking about. Uh, we, we've that now brought God down to our level. We've tamed him. We've domesticated him. We've made him a finite type of being. But when we look at scripture, we say, no, this is the God whose glory is is so uh, so majestic, whose essence is so infinite, uh, that uh, he is incomprehensible. Now, Now that means that that's humbling for us, right? Because that means, we cannot then pretend arrogantly to, to have mastered God at any one point, as if we can comprehensively understand who God is. Uh, no, this is the, the infinite incomprehensible one. Nevertheless, though we cannot know God exhaustively, we can know him truly. So, so there's the warning against you know, going the, you know, the, the other extreme of you know, a type of agnosticism and, and saying we can't know anything about God. Uh, how is this possible? Well, it's possible because though this God is incomprehensible, uh, he has revealed himself. Uh, Calvin uh, uses this language, so I'm, I'm sort of borrowing from him at this point, but God has revealed himself through his mighty acts, his mighty deeds, his mighty works. So yes, this, this God, we, we, we dare not pretend we can uh, know his infinite essence. But we can know him by means of his works, which Calvin says, this is accommodation. Uh, God is like that nurse who is lisping to us uh, so that uh, uh, we can actually uh, know something true about him and how he uh, how he has redeemed us, uh, Mm -hmm. us finite sinful creatures. So, yeah, yeah,
1: go ahead. Well, I I was just playing off of what Amy said, too, about the importance of. Um, these doctrines for for the layperson. We're, we're and and I, I you know we're starting to scratch the surface here of showing that these are not just simply um, esoteric conversations for academics. That this is when we're dealing with about when we're dealing with the truth of God. There's something um, uh, inherently doxological about it. You know, we're saying, behold your God. That there's something there's an end in itself right there. First of all, yeah. to, to to behold your God, and we have to help. Pastors have to help their, um, uh, the, the, the men and women uh, who listen to them preach every week. That sometimes that's the application. Behold your God. Sometimes yeah. that's the application. And, and other, um, I just uh, started five weeks ago, started preaching through um, Genesis, and we're still in the first two verses. We, we've, we've camped out on, in the beginning, God. And so we're talking about what does God show us about himself? kind of unfolding and revealing ways in genesis and last week we were talking about uh, his goodness and it gave me a perfect opportunity to talk about the doctrine of simplicity meaning goodness is god's essence and and the comfort that that brings to us is this is that since goodness isn't a part of god or or just a thing he does since it's his essence he can't be anything other than good. Now, he's more than just good, but he can never be less than good. And so then you begin to apply that to your hearers who that week are wondering, because of a wayward child or because of a cancer diagnosis or because of of, of depression or an, or a spouse that's abused them, they're wondering if God can be good in that. And that's where things like this give the pastor an opportunity to help those men and women just like himself just like he has to to anchor his hope in god and and in these hard to describe attributes
2: i love i love that that example there todd uh and you know as a pastor yourself uh i I commend you for that um I, i think the the illustration you just gave from your own pastoral ministry that's exactly how you know, if, to pastors out there, they may be thinking, "Goodness, you know, how how could I ever introduce these attributes to my congregation? They seem so difficult. Uh, they, they, my congregation has no category for them." But like you just said, it, we don't need to overcomplicate it, right? Uh, right? As we are coming to the text itself, God Himself uh, is is their front and center. He's the he he not only is the scriptwriter, uh, but he he's right. the main actor in right. this drama. Well, if, if that's the case, then. Uh, sometimes and there's a bit of irony here right because as churches we tend to think well i i want to 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 know god i want to have a relationship with god i want there to be a relational aspect so we just assume right well uh, i must then you know bring god down to my level uh mm-hmm. and we more or less end up domesticating him right. but but actually uh uh well and in the process of doing that we completely uh, compromise uh, his character. What? We compromise his transcendence, his incomprehensibility, and all these rich attributes we're talking about. We, so, we, it's ironic because we actually lose so much of God in, our, exactly. in, in the, the maybe good-intentioned uh, motive to, to somehow know him. Mm. But like you're, you're explaining, as pastors or, or churchgoers, if we would actually just come to terms with, with uh, God as he's presented in the text itself, we might be surprised to discover that that uh, the Scripture first and foremost presents this God as Isaiah says is the one who's high and lifted up. And once right. we are, once we stand in awe of of who this God is, uh, and and how little we actually know, and and well, it's at that point then that we're we're then moved to worship, which is what Sunday morning is supposed to be about. We're right. then moved to worship, and like you, the examples you gave, those are such good ones. Uh, practically, that means that, that there's massive implications for how we live the Christian life.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. Pleasure having you on the program, Matthew, and maybe summing up, say something like this, that for a lot of evangelicals, a lot of Christians uh, out there, the doctrine of Scripture is very, very important, and we spend a lot of time thinking about that. But when you, when you sit back and reflect on that, the doctrine of Scripture is only important because Scripture is necessary to give us an accurate picture of God, and in fact, the identity of God and of God's actions is, we might say, the most important thing. And therefore, it's uh, it's important for, for Reformed Christians, Evangelical Christians, Christians everywhere to spend perhaps more time than we have done in the past reflecting upon how we think about God, how we talk about God, and and bringing those thoughts and the words we use into line with, with the great teachings of the Orthodox churches of, of times past. and. If you're interested in doing that, there's possibly no better way of starting than uh, getting hold of uh, Matthew's book, None Greater. We're very pleased to have uh, a number to give away today. If you visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter for a chance to win uh, a copy of Matthew's book. But if uh, you're not, uh, can I say, lucky enough on this program, if providence doesn't lead Mm. to you receiving a free copy of the book, (laughs) uh, your money would be well spent in buying A copy for yourself and reading it and and inwardly digesting what it says. It would just be the beginning of uh, what I think would be a a fascinating, exciting and and well worthwhile uh, study for all Christians out there. So, as a close, it remains only to thank uh, Matthew for being with us today. I say do, as I say, visit our website, mortificationspin.org. Do remember, please, that we're a viewer, listener-supported podcast. And if you feel there, do make a donation via the donate button there. In the meantime, I'd like to thank you all for listening, and we look forward to being with you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Carl Bart and many others. uh, And to a certain extent, even I think sometimes Cornelius Van Til believed that uh, Jesus has to be the the starting point
2: for all of knowledge, and while that may sound uh, very pious and and important, uh, at the same time it differs significantly from how historic Reformed theology, even the theology that we found uh, find in the Reformed confessions, has
0: approached the topic. We'll talk to you next time on mortification of spin.
3: If you go down in the woods today, do you know that? Is that not an American song? Today's oh the way. day the teddy bears have their picnic. Do you not know, know that one? That's a funny. standard kid song. That's Picnic funny. time for teddy bears. Teddy bears are having a lovely time today. <laughs> Watch them gaily gather at Do you know that one? <laughs> that could be perfect. <laughs> <laughs>